Welcome to the Weekend University podcast, and this is your host, Niall McKeever. The Weekend University was set up to make the best psychology lectures available to the general public. To do this, we organize lecture days once per month, where attendees get a full day of talks from the UK's leading psychologists, authors, and university professors. Our podcast features in-depth interviews with our speakers, so you can learn more about their work. To keep updated on upcoming events and new lectures, you can sign up for the mailing list at theweekenduniversity.com. In this episode, we're joined by one of the UK's leading experts on Carl Jung and Jungian psychology, Dr. Kevin Liu. Dr. Liu is the director of the MA in Jungian and Post-Jungian Studies at the University of Essex and a former member of the Executive Committee for the International Association for Jungian Studies. His publications include articles and chapters on Jung's relationship to the discipline of history, critical assessments of the theory of cultural complexes, and Jungian perspectives on graphic novels and their adaptation to film. In this conversation, we discuss everything from Jung's relationship with his parents, to his views on religion, complexes, archetypes, the individuation process, and a whole lot more. Before we get started, I want to let you know about a new competition we're running. Basically, we're giving away a three-month pass worth £150 to the Weekend University to one lucky winner. To enter the competition, simply subscribe to this podcast on iTunes and leave a review. We'll choose one reviewer at the end of September for the three-month pass. Enjoy the show. All right, Kevin, so to get started, could you just tell me a bit more about your background and how you got into the work you're currently doing and how did you get so interested in, in Carl Jung? Yeah, so I mean, first and foremost, I grew up in uh, Canada, uh, Toronto, Ontario, Canada, to, to be more precise. Um, initially, there were no ambitions to, to go to university, to be honest. Um, but I, I just followed that path because, you know, it was something I thought would make my, my parents proud and happy, get them off my back, um, and then kind of pursue my other interests at the time. But once I got there, um, you know, I was inspired um, by two people in particular, but the first was a historian. And um, I was lucky enough that I ended up being his research assistant, and I was working with him one day. And he just casually said in passing that, you know, if I didn't continue on um, to, to complete my PhD, it would be a real shame and a real waste. And, and for him, I think it was just, you know, some observation he was making, a casual observation. But for me, it was, you know, revolutionary and groundbreaking and, and kind of completely shifted my life in another direction because here was, you know, someone recognizing me um, for what I could bring to the table. Um, and really just that encouragement that I was looking for. So after that, I invested so much of my energy and time into my academic work. Um, and it was through his support that I realized that history wasn't my field of study. Um, and I found that as much as I love the discipline of history, I couldn't commit myself to the historical record. That is to, to constantly look at primary sources, you know, economic records, because Tim was a, an economic historian. And, you know, with this blessing, I, I went off to, to look to, to other de degree programs um, because the degree programs are structured a bit differently there. So I started taking a, a plethora of other courses and found a, a course on Carl Jung. 
And that was taught by Professor Ann Yeoman, who was also the Dean of New College at the time. And I think it was quite instant by the, the second lecture, um, I knew that this is it, right? This is, I, this is the, the subject and the field I want to invest my time into and, and my life in, um, because it resonated with me at so many levels. And I think for many people who first read Young, there will be that feeling that, oh my goodness, Young is speaking to me specifically, right? This man is writing about all my issues, everything I've ever felt, and it's right there on the page. And I think in time, you move away from that. But at that moment, that's what I wanted to commit myself to. So I stormed into her office. I threw my transcript on the table and I said, you're going to help me. And lucky, lucky, uh, lucky enough, she was, you know, just realized that I needed someone to, uh, to guide me a bit. And then she really invested a lot of time and effort into me. And that's how I, I got into to the psychology of Carl Jung specifically, but psychoanalysis more generally. Um, and that moved me to the religion department, um, because at that time at the University of Toronto, the only way to study either Freud or Jung was actually through the religion department, because they offered several courses on the psychology of religion. So that's how I ended up with a degree uh, from the University of Toronto, specializing in the psychology of religion, and there were a few minors attached to it as well. Um, I then moved to uh, the UK, because it was time to go for many, many reasons. Uh, personal, but, you know, also the, the fact that the field I want to study, all the big players, all the, the big names are in the UK. But rather than go to Essex right off the bat, even though I was accepted onto the course, I decided to um, enroll on a broader MA. And it was really strategic at that point, because I wanted to ensure that if the PhD was going to be so specific about psychoanalysis and analytical psychology, then I need to show at least at, at that kind of higher level that there were several, you know, um, several different strands to my thinking that I could fit into other departments. And that's why I decided to complete the MA in Psychology of Religion uh, at Heathrop College, University of London. So I did that. And then I started applying for PhDs. Uh, I applied to several institutions. And oddly enough, the, the place I accepted originally was at the University of Edinburgh uh, to, to be at New College. Uh, and I was really thrilled, but there was no scholarship attached to it. So the plan originally was to head back to, um, to my old mentor, Tim, and to work with him uh, at UBC because he had relocated to UBC. Um, and from there, the, the aim was then to um, just earn some money, get back to the UK, and then figure things out from there. And then I was lucky enough that um, the University of Essex, um, the institution I also applied to, they came back to me quite late in the game and said, by the way, you've won a scholarship. And it was a no brainer. So from then on, it was, <laughs> you know, saying no to, to Edinburgh and then heading to the University of Essex. And that's where I've been ever since. So I started the PhD in 2006. I applied for a job that came up in 2009 and I thought it was just a practice run everyone thought including my father you know he thought that you're not going to get it um and lo and behold I I got it and I've been there ever since so I've been a lecturer there since 2009. Wow okay that's quite a story. Um, yeah. <laughs> so Kevin 
recently we've seen a big resurgence in the interest in the ideas of Jung. And I want to I want to ask you, why do you think this is? I think Andrew Samuels wrote an article in 2012 about this could be the century of, of Carl Jung. And could you talk a bit more about that and why you think he's coming back into into popularity now of, of all times? Mm-hmm. I think there is a, a certain a certain timeless quality to to Young's insights. And because he was so ahead of the game, because he was so intuitive, people really didn't quite understand some of the things um, he was trying to convey and, and trying to say. And perhaps, you know, it just wasn't the right time for it. And perhaps now with certain developments in society, in culture, it seems perhaps his ideas are becoming more relevant or people are beginning to understand more and more the applicability of Young's ideas. And there could be several reasons. I mean, Andrew's certainly a big player in this. Um, he almost single-handedly uh, wrote the textbook on post-Jungian thinking, i.e. a more critical approach to, to Jung's ideas, but also with a, a deep appreciation. And also this realm of Jungian applications where we use Jung's ideas and see how they might inform or contribute to other areas of academic study, right? So that's where you have the realm of Jungian applications where you can... Um, begin to see, let's say, the points of convergence and divergence between young in history, young in sociology, um, the arts, et cetera, et cetera, right? The psychology of religion. Because again, Young spoke very specifically about some of these topics, but he left a lot of clues and hints throughout his work as well. And it's really been the, um, you know, the, the, the onus has, has been on those studying Young, i.e. the post-Jungians, that have kind of extended Young's ideas um, and, and psychology into these different realms. And sometimes these applications work and, and sometimes they don't work, right? But there's certainly an openness to, to seeing whether or not there's some purchase, if you will, to, to these ideas. It's not unproblematic. You know, Young made some very problematic statements throughout his life about national psychologies, um, but perhaps people are beginning to see the value that can be seen beyond that, right? I, I don't think we should definitely, we shouldn't avoid some of these pitfalls to Young's thinking, but certainly there's a willingness amongst the post-Jungians to, to tackle them, right? And to not just kind of brush it under the table. Yeah, for sure. For sure. So now, Kevin, I want to talk about some of the significant moments on Jung in his early life and the influences that kind of made Carl Jung who he was as a person so maybe we could talk about maybe things like his his relationship with his parents, uh, the, the the church and third incident that happened when he was growing up and the significance of that. Sure. And also, he read he read in a textbook I think in you may sit in your lecture with us. Mm-hmm. Uh, he read in a textbook when he was just getting into psychiatry and things that psychosis is a maladjustment of the personality. And this was a big moment in his life. So could you maybe talk, talk a bit more about that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he had this distinction between personality number one and personality number two. And he aligned that with, let's say, the realm of his father and the realm of his mother, uh, respectively. So personality, one, personality number one was entrenched, if you will, with everyday life, very logical, um, and he really kind of understood that as the basic things you need to take care of in the first part of your life, right? That you need to get a job, 
you need to settle down, you need to be able to earn a living, et cetera, et cetera. And this is the realm of consciousness in, in many ways, right? When we move into the, the realm of personality number two, he is talking more about the unconscious, right? So the irrational, the irrational, the uncanny, but also if you, you know, move into that second half of life, which he, he attached much more to um, personality number two, you begin to explore um, issues of your, you know, your own existence, if you will, right? The very fact that our, our life is, is limited, um, but there's so much more beyond that, the symbolic life that we lead the, lead, the psychological life that we lead. And to him, that was really important. And in order to have a full understanding of the personality, you need to see both aspects of it, personality number one and personal, personality number two. Um, and especially with an emphasis on understanding the unconscious because so little was known about the unconscious at the time. And he aligned that with his parental figures. So his dad, you know, was uh, a man who was very predictable, right, in, in many ways. Um, but he also had, on the whole, a relatively negative estimation of his father because he was a, a Protestant clergyman and with no other prospects of work, he persisted um, in you know, with his, with his duties. And for Young, this was really problematic because in essence, he saw his dad as a, a bit of a hypocrite, i.e. someone who had lost his faith in God and yet he persisted, if you will, um, to, to, to speak God's message. Um, and that really shaped, if you will, Young's psychology of religion later in life. His mother, on the other hand, was purported to have clairvoyant abilities. Um, there were also many pastors on that side of the family um, but there was definitely a sense of the uncanny that his mother represented. So his mother represented the nighttime, if you will, right? That which is unpredictable. Um, and in essence, he had both experiences, if you will, through his parents very early on, i.e. of consciousness and the unconscious. In terms of the, the third vision, it's very funny because I see that as pivotal to the development of his psychology of religion. And basically one day he was walking past Basel Cathedral and there was this thought that came into his mind um, and almost a fantasy that wanted to intrude his space, if you will. And he just had to push it away, right? He said, no, I can't think this thought through to its logical conclusion. So he, he, he kept pushing, if you will, for, for many days, not letting the thought through. And then he finally realized that he had to, to let everything just go right and to let the idea come into his mind to let it come to fruition and basically the vision was of a turd uh falling from the sky and smashing the uh the the roof of basil cathedral and in retrospect when young was thinking about this what it signified and what it symbolized for him there's the the level of the church right that is more if you will administrative right that mediates one's relationship with that which we consider god and in essence what he felt was that god actually the the real god the god above god what tillich would call the god above god was actually defecating on that level of the church that purports to mediate one's understanding of god right so you know yes the church is a foundation the church is a structure that you know through which that we approach the divine right in many ways uh, from a psychological perspective it's, it's a container but for young that container had been corrupted in many ways through the historical development of the church as an institution so his question was well why do we need the, the church to mediate 
my understanding of God? Why can't I just begin to communicate with God, right? That I don't need all the baggage that comes with this layer, um, if you will, uh, of the institution. And that's how we should approach it, i.e., for some, it is important to have that container, i.e. to go through the, the, the steps and the structure of the church. But for him, true individuation, true becoming, a true realization of the personality needs to have that direct experience with the numinous. Very interesting. So, Kevin, next, um, could you just tell me about some of the major influences on Jung's thinking? I know there was a, there was, there's a slight link between him and uh, Gotha. Mm-hmm. Were there any other major influences on Jung's thinking? Yeah, so in terms of Goethe, um, he always played with this idea that, you know, this silly little rumor, he he would consider it, but really he loved it. And basically the rumor was, was that um, his grandfather was the illegitimate child of Goethe, which would then, in his eyes, explain the fascination that he had with Goethe, the symmetries and and the connections between his work and, and Goethe's thinking as well. And again, he would just say, oh, that's a silly little thing. But he, he loved it. He played it up. Um, and, you know, at, at least from a, a kind of intellectual point of view, you can see the, the similarities. And, and he drew from, you know, quite a bit from Goethe. But he also drew from a lot of philosophers. So Immanuel Kant, you can also see, um, you know, the, the notion of platonic forms. I mean, if, if you look to, to his interest in the East, Richard Wilhelm, played a, a crucial role um, in his engagement with the East. Um, the historian Jacob Burkhardt also played a role. He took the, the notion of primordial um, images, uh, which was a, original, uh, sorry, a term originally forwarded by uh, Burkhardt himself. Yeah, makes sense. In an interview, I think it was the, with the BBC, Jung was asked, uh, did he believe in God? And he responded, I know, I don't need to, I don't need to believe, I know. Uh, what do you think Jung meant when he said this? Originally, people thought, you know, he had a lot of letters come in, actually from correspondents, from priests, etc., who said, we always knew you believed, you know, we knew you were fighting for our team and, and good man and, and all these things. And he actually wrote a response and he published it in The Listener, I believe it was. And he said, it's not that, he, you know, what he said was um, a statement about his belief in God. What he knows is that the idea of God actually exists. The fact that people believe is psychological and very interesting, and that's what he's interested in. So the fact that people believe in this means that we have to study it, right? It means that we have to to work from the notion or from the idea that such an idea of God, that we project something onto this, this entity known as God, this in itself exists. So it wasn't necessarily a belief in one single God Right, the the god of Judeo Christianity, um, you know, of of Eastern religions, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. No, it's the fact that so many people believe means that empirically it is real, it is psychologically real, which means it merits our attention and and merits further study. Okay, very interesting. You mentioned there about Eastern religions. What what was um Jung's thoughts on Eastern religions and their influence on the Western psyche? Sure. So he saw the relationship between East and West as a compensatory relationship, i.e. the West represented um, uh, an overemphasis on scientific knowledge of consciousness, right, on rationality. But, you know, with the East, you have the the complete opposite, i.e. that which focuses on 
the irrational, the irrational, if you will, um, one that is deeply embedded to what he would call the unconscious. And I think there are pros and cons to, to, to way of viewing things. I mean, there's a huge dichotomy there, which is quite problematic, right? I.e. with, you know, the, the West versus the rest. Um, so that's always a kind of line of thinking that we need to be very careful of when you have such stark divisions between opposites. But essentially, what Jung was seeing was that because the, the West was so overemphasized, if you will, in rationality, in consciousness, in personality number one, it needed an engagement with the East um, and what it represents in order to redress the balance, right? So for him, the reason why there was so much uh, issue, so many issues with mental illness at that time, right? Even at that time, in Young's time, where there was this total lack of meaning that he saw in his patients, one route to, to re-imbuing some of that meaning or to see things in larger perspective was to, to notice and to appreciate how the East, right, or how Eastern thinking approached life. He wanted to build a bridge with the East. He wanted to try to understand it, to see what it could bring in terms of a, a sense of healing for uh, the Western psyche and what it was lacking in many ways, right, i.e. an emphasis on the unconscious, um, of not necessarily always being so directed in our lives that we need to solve this, this, and this. Maybe the unconscious has other plans. Maybe we need to just sit tight and see what happens, right? But for Westerners, or at least many Westerners in Young's estimation, that's very difficult to do. So he begins then to, to really dialogue with Eastern, yeah, Eastern thought. And again, he sees all these points of convergence with his own line of thinking and his own emphasis on the unconscious. But there are many limitations, he felt, to Westerners turning to the East, right? And, and the fact is, and, and this is the, the real aspect of Jung that is quite sociological and historical, is that we are culturally embedded, right? We are Westerners. We are born with a certain symbol set. So that being the case, we can't then jump to a completely different symbol set. So yes, if you practice yoga, there are physical um, you know, uh, uh, positives or, or sorry, physical gains, if you will, that, 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 that's great for the body. But at the same time, for the East, it's, it's a way of life as well. It's a philosophy. And if we don't engage it on its own terms, then we're only kind of doing this kind of pick and mix deal, right? We go to the candy store, we just pick what we want and it's, it's all in the bag. No, it's not seeing that culture and, and that way of life for what it is. But equally, the, the more dangerous aspect of it is that it might begin to touch upon unconscious material that we're not ready to, to deal with. Why? Again, because the, the container is different. We're Westerners. We have a, a different symbolic set. We, we engage the unconscious in different ways through different ways of learning, um, you know, through our education. We engage the irrational in different ways. Whereas in the East, Young felt that it was just on the surface. It was so easy for them to kind of delve into that. And Young was all for the strong enough container, right? That which mediates the uncon uh, that which mediates the unconscious contents and brings it into consciousness. And he felt that if we start engaging with these Eastern practices, we might dredge up a lot of unconscious material, but we might not have the sufficient ego or container to deal with, with all that material. So what ends up happening is that rather than gaining the benefits of engaging consciously with that material, that unconscious material would just overwhelm us. It would overtake us. It would lead to archetypal possession. And in that sense, any kind of positives you could take out of it, well, that goes out the window, right? 
because then there is a just a, a complete takeover of the psyche and that's exactly what he warned against actually so although he saw you know great importance in engaging with eastern thought there were certain limitations right that he wouldn't take it as far as beginning to practice as if one was and you know from the east if you were born and bred in the west 100 percent, that makes sense so, so now kevin i want to talk about complexes uh, for anyone that doesn't know could you please explain the concept of of complexes please yeah so i mean at a very basic level and again this is basic because it's much more complex than, than what i'm going to say but you know, complexes are contents of the personal unconscious. So Jung divides the psyche um, as consciousness, the personal unconscious, and the collective unconscious. And at the level of the personal, um, uh, sorry, the personal unconscious, you have its contents, i.e. the complexes. So these are specific to the individual. And what happens is that, you know, when we have certain real life experiences, and perhaps more specifically, certain traumas um, that occur, we tend to want to push them down and forget them, right? To, to suppress them in many ways, because guess what? Um, we can't deal with it in everyday life. So if we've had some traumatic experience, if we have a job to get on with, if we have life to get on with, we need to forget it in many ways. So we start pushing it down. Now, when we start pushing down these emotions and these feelings, they all have to go somewhere. And what Jung is suggesting is that they start collating in this realm of psyche called the personal unconscious right so all these emotions that we put down they're usually attached to a figure in our lives right so let's say it would be mother or father etc all those feelings that we have through our experiences with mother or father will start accumulating in the personal unconscious so all the emotions all the good and the bad and the ambivalent that we may feel let's say towards our father they start coming together as if it was its own solar system to a certain extent, right? And what happens is that all these emotions start tying together, right? Into an entity, you know, as if it was an entity on its own. And that's what builds the complex, right? The complex itself is, you know, a very kind of emotionally toned content of the personal unconscious. So what happens is when we move forward and we experience someone who reminds us of our father, and they touch on something very specific that we experience with our father, what happens is that we might respond with our complex, right? Rather than seeing the person as separate, i.e. not my father, um, because they touch that emotion that has been tied to, uh, tied to father, the whole system, if you will, gets pushed to the forefront. And the reaction might be very strong, right? So someone has just completely said the wrong word, something my dad used to say to me, and I completely explode. Whereas in, in reality, I might be a very calm, you know, collected kind of guy. No, in that moment, everything gets unleashed. And I'm usually not like that. So what, you know, how Young tries to explain that is what's happened is that we've been possessed, if you will, by the complex. And it seems as if there is something outside of ourselves that is coming to the forefront. We've acted in a way that is not us right? Well, for young, that is the complex. The complex seems like it's an autonomous entity that can possess us, right? And can affect our lives in, in, in many ways. And usually it's through these emotional outbursts that we can tell a complex has been touched. Um, but ultimately for young, you know, beyond the complex is a connection to, to the larger realm of the collective unconscious through his notion of the archetypes. 
Interesting. So is there anything people can do to be more aware of their own complexes and be more aware whenever they do arise in the moment and not be taken over by them? Yeah, I mean, that's exactly it, that, you know, it's very easy at an intellectual level to know that we have a certain mother complex, a sibling complex, a father complex, uh, perhaps even a national complex to a certain extent. Um, And, you know, when we react in a very emotional way, again, that's a very good indication that something has been touched. When we react in a way that's not usually our normal way of interacting and reacting, then we know a complex has been touched. And the most difficult thing is to actually, you know, step aside for a second and say, do I need to react in this particular way right now, right? Is this most conducive aid to my own survival? Um, but also, you know, to, to the forwarding of my own individual self. And that includes one's career, right? It includes all the, the first half of life stuff that many youngins perhaps don't want to focus on. But, but this is real, you know, the, the full gamut of life is the conscious, or sorry, is conscious life and the unconscious. So let's not forget the importance of needing to survive in this world. And our complexes, the the way it it forces us to act in many respects, that can be very detrimental to our own development. So I think in those instances, can we begin to separate um, from the complex, right? Does it need voice right now? Are there different ways that I can express the complex without perhaps putting my own position in danger? And that really is the most difficult part. And that's why individuation, self-development is so difficult. Because again, we can say intellectually, yes, I understand this. But when it comes down to doing it, how do I do it? And it's going to be different for every single person, right? There is no kind of set formula. But definitely, you know, the ability to not be controlled or to be less controlled um, by those, those patterns of the past, right? Um, and how they, they cause us to react in certain ways. To be less controlled by that, um, to, to be more humble, um, to be more open to individuals, that in, in many ways is a way to kind of step outside from our inclinations and perhaps how we've um, acted in the past. Yeah. Now, in your talk with us, you said that the complexes are almost like the flesh of the archetypes. Mm-hmm. Could you expand a bit on that? And then maybe, maybe if you could explain what archetypes are for someone who's never heard of the concept before too. Sure. So when we say the flesh of the archetype, um, you know, when we go back to those core, relationship, uh, core relationships that really the complexes are based on, i.e. Our, our immediate family, mother, father, siblings, etc., that's the first time we begin to know an aspect of the archetype. Now, an archetype, again, many different definitions, some of them competing, you know, so it's a very difficult idea to pinpoint, but there are several ways to approach it. So what makes us typically human is one question you can ask yourself, right? What makes us typically human? And what you'll find is there are certain kind of key events through the human lifespan right, that we all share, irrespective um, of cultural differences, right? So the example I usually use is, you know, if you look at the seven sacraments, um, you'll see a a kind of marker of all the important stages of life. Now, if you look to other cultures, you may not find direct equivalents, but you'll find, you know, certainly there is a, you know, um, a ceremony 
to, to welcome an individual into this life, i.e. to celebrate birth. There are usually rituals um, or celebrations around initiation of coming of age, of marriage, of union, of priesthood, spirituality, and of death. So in many ways, these are archetypal experiences, right? These are patterns of interaction and relationship that have been developed through eons of human experience that we all share irrespective of cultural difference, right? That in essence um, is, is what an archetype is, right? That which connects us, right? That which makes our lives typically human. So that's one way of defining the archetype. You then into, you know, get into more specific archetypes. So for Jung, he, he begins engaging a lot um, with his own personality development. And many people will be familiar with what many have come to call his confrontation with the unconscious. And I think this has become more and more well known because of the important publications uh, through the Philemon Foundation, such as the Red Book. And I believe the, the Black Books are, are, are coming out soon as well. Um, but basically here, when he begins to engage with his own inner material, it, it, it's difficult to concretize, right? So in order to begin this dialogue with, with, with his own kind of psychological contents and processes, he begins to name them. He gives them flesh, if you will, right? And that's where you get the personified archetypes. So the anima, the animus, the persona, the self, the shadow, et cetera, et cetera, the wise old man, the crone. Um, and again, it's important to note that these aren't real figures, if you will, in our head. If anything, they're, they're metaphors, right? They're, they're ways of speaking, of, of symbolizing that deep connection between us and our own interior life, but then how that interior life also gets projected into our outer world relationships. So in many ways, everything is kind of interconnected. Very interesting. So now, Kevin, I want to talk about individuation. Was this, was this an original Jungian idea or were people before talking about this process? Sure. The term itself is not new. Um, but I think what's important for, for Jung, I be, believe Heraclitus was the one, um, you know, the, where Jung takes the term individuation from. But, you know, when we're looking at this specific idea or notion of personality development, I think what, what is key for Jung is that, and many people don't see this, that there's an emphasis on, let's say, the more spiritual aspects, the need to, to move away from society, but also the, the need to reconnect with society as well. So individuation can be defined as a process of becoming, right? Becoming what one was truly born to be, of realizing our own innate potential. And these are all very romantic notions. And, and hey, these are fantastic, right? The idea that you know, who I'm meant to be, my own vocation, what I'm supposed to do with my life, the person I'm, I'm, I'm supposed to become, that's already inside of me, right? And my task throughout this life is to realize that potential, to tap into it, to give it voice, to follow through on that process. And for young, there are times where we want to move away from that, right? That it's too hard. It's not what society would deem the correct path, right? It means I'm not going to make enough money, et cetera, et cetera. And Young said it's so important to heed that call to vocation, right? Because in many ways, you're not just fulfilling yourself, you're fulfilling your contribution, if you will, to society and culture, right? And shame on you if you don't go through with it, because in many ways, you've robbed yourself of your own 
you know, best version, your own true self, but also of your contribution to, to society. And again, it, you know, with individuation, a lot of people kind of emphasize that more romantic notion of it. But at the same time, there's something very practical that, you know, we're part of a society, right? And the importance of individuation is, yes, there are moments of withdrawal where we have to withdraw from society. But at the same time, there are moments, you know, where we have to symbolically bring that goal back to society. Whatever we've learned through our own inner personal journeys, there is a need to share that with the rest of society, to make a contribution to society. So in that sense, you know, young psychology is, is so... Um, is so prepared, if you will, to make that contribution to understanding society and culture and allowing that psychology to be extended into all these different realms. Yeah. And I'm curious, Kevin, has studying Jung benefited your own, studying Jungian ideas benefited your own life in any way? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, like it or lump it, it, it it's a framework for understanding the psyche, of understanding our motivations of what makes us tick, um, of th the things that bother us, of why we've developed in a certain way. So yeah, obviously th there is that tendency to use Jung's ideas and to kind of analyze and reflect on our own lives. Now, whether or not the insights we gain are truly reliable is another matter. Some would argue that in order to, to really have this kind of self-exploration and, and to kind of confirm some of these ideas is to have an analyst, is to undergo Jungian analysis or therapy of some kind, but certainly at the level of understanding myself and trying to frame an understanding of, of other people's motivations, it, it is certainly helpful. And obviously from the academic standpoint, I use Jung as a lens um, to, you know, to see whether or not there's a contribution to, to discourses or to debates uh, within history, um, but also again to to cultural products, right, of looking at film, um, and again, asking not just what does this film represent from a Jungian point of view, but more specifically, what it says about society and culture. Yes, yes. Um, now, is there any downside to the individuation process? Because from, it seems very romantic, and it seems like it's something everybody should be doing, but are there any, any negatives to this, this process? Yeah, people can indulge in it. It can be become an excuse for some questionable behavior, right? So, you know, you're, you're walking down the street and you push someone who's in your way and say, that's okay, they're not individuated. I'm on the process, you know, I'm on the path of individuation. So it almost becomes um, an excuse for people to act in, in really questionable ways, to do questionable things, um, to do, you know, perhaps um, to, to act in a certain way that's not quite, within Western morals, if you will, to a certain extent. Um, so there's a, a certainly a danger of that. There's also a danger of inflation, right? We talked about engaging with, uh, the, the, with archetypal material from a really conscious point of view with a strong ego. And at, at many points, if people get lost in this realm of the archetypal in the unconscious, the danger is, is that we don't spend enough time on consciousness. So many people kind of conflate uh, individuation with only being, you know, engaging with the unconscious material, but it's not that it's engaging consciously with the unconscious material to then bring it into the realm of everyday living, right. To make it a part of the personality. And that in essence is how the personality actually grows and develops, right. Not just 
getting lost in the archetypal material, but making it making it a part of our everyday lives. Yeah, yeah, makes sense. Now, Kevin, could you tell us about Jung's idea of the shadow? Sure, sure. So the the idea of the shadow um, is that you know, for Jung, if you ask yourself, "What do I not like in other people?" and you have a whole litany of of, of responses. Um, and basically what Jung is saying is that, well, that's shadow projection, right? Because that which you don't like in others is actually a part of yourself. So in many ways, you could define the shadow as the dark side of the personality, uh, that which we would not want to acknowledge about ourselves, which we then project onto other individuals and to other groups as well. But for Jung, you know, shadow also en encompasses anything that has yet come to consciousness. So in many ways, it, there's a, a potentially very positive aspect to the shadow. So if you have yet to realize your fullest potential, then literally it lies in shadow, right? It hasn't come to the surface yet. So again, in many ways, it refers to the negative side of the personality, but also there is definitely a more positive side to the shadow as well, which is true of all archetypal material for young. Um, for young, the archetypes are bipolar in nature, right? They're there are extremes, i.e. the positive and the negative, and every gradient in between as well. Are there any practices or anything people can do to integrate their shadow? That's interesting. I mean, being mindful of how we interact with others um, and, and really trying to, to be careful to, and to really see whether or not the way we're reacting is, is truly us or actually being informed by let's say larger narratives within society. Again, the, the shadow will be different for every individual, but I think the moment where we begin to demonize another individual, another group, right? And we become really emotional about it is also a good indication that the shadow has been touched in certain ways. Yeah, makes sense. So Kevin, who would you say the most significant critics of Jung were? I mean, there are so many. Uh, I think, you know, in general, it's not, yes, it's individuals, but it's also kind of larger fields of study that have opposed Jung. And I think in many ways that boils down to this more mystical notion or sorry, this mystical bent in his ideas um, that he wanted to study the uncanny. But, you know, in many ways within an academic setting, that's, that's just not the way things are going down. Um, the other critique really is that Jung was really looking for universals as much as he was concerned with context with the the archetypal image many would only see his postulation of the archetypes as being universal patterns of human interaction relationship that have been inherited down the line and what people don't see is that it's not content right not personal or cultural experience that's being inherited it's just the skeletal framework or the ability to have a full range of experiences. That's what's being inherited. Um, so I think those types of ideas in Jung are, are kind of real stumbling blocks for the, the contribution of his psychology to other disciplines, especially within academia, where so much of the emphasis is on the particular, right? And how things are different of seeing both similarities and differences. And I think in order for analytical psychology to be able to contribute to those larger debates, it needs to emphasize and to work on and redevelop in many ways those elements of its thinking that, that are geared towards the, the social, right? Of not just saying it's a universal, but noting how complicated human experience actually is. And I certainly think it's embedded in Jung, 
and the, the post youngings just have to really uncover it and develop it further. Yeah. Now, if you had to pick, if you had to pick just one, what would you say Jung's most significant contribution to the human race has been? I think, you know, I would be tempted to, to kind of name a person, a particular concept, but I would say just the willingness to explore that which is unknown and to deepen our personality, to, to know more about ourselves and, and to know more about what makes us work, which includes both the conscious and the unconscious. Now, Freud did it as well, right? Um, but I think with Jung and, and his ideas, there's a certain appreciation for that which kind of moves beyond rational experience. I think he's still engaged in that in a very rational and empirical way in many respects. But definitely the ability to acknowledge that, hey, these weird instances of what he calls synchronicities, they actually do happen. But let's try to talk about this rational, uh, rationally and, and, and scientifically. Sometimes he failed. Sometimes there are some good insights in there. Um, but definitely the, the curiosity um, that he always had and, and the openness in which he, he approached different cultures, different ideas. And for all his sins, trying to synthesize all these different ideas, trying to bring them together in many ways. And again, to see more about human connection and interaction rather than, than division. Now, in your years of study, Kevin, have you come across any, any surprising things about Carl Jung that most people wouldn't be aware of? Um, I mean, that's an interesting question. Uh, I mean, it, it can move from, let's say, banal things that, you know, he likes sailing, uh, which is really cool. He's a human that, you know, isn't always kind of thinking about the unconscious, if you will. Um, so there are kind of tidbits like that. But also, you know, there are the more problematic aspects of his personality, things that he's done um, that will certainly come to the forefront. So the accusation of anti-Semitism, um, you know, that was leveled at him uh, through a, a dossier, if you will, that was submitted uh, to the, the, the CIA. Um, extramarital affairs as well, which again, everyone knows happens, but because of certain pressures, um, you know, not many people want to, to delve too deeply into that realm. So I think if anything, it's, you know, looking at Young and, and just being prepared to be disenchanted because Young's ideas, they can be very seductive. And there, you know, there's some really great ideas there that can help people understand themselves in, in a deeper and more meaningful way. But I think really the, the, the true test, is, test, if you will, is that when we kind of uncover these more unsavory tidbits to Young's personality, the way he led his life, et cetera, the question we have to ask ourselves constantly is, you know, is there, you know, is there something still there worth salvaging? Right. Is there that kind of nugget of gold, if you will, that we can hold on to, despite um, perhaps some of the more unsavory elements of, of Young's life and how he practices life? Yeah, definitely. For someone looking for a good introductory book on the work of Carl Jung, are there any you'd recommend? Yeah, I mean, I actually recommend the Tavistock lectures um, because Young there, you know, that the context is that he's giving a series of five lectures to, to the Tavistock, right, um, clinic in, 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 the, the, in the UK here. And there he's, he's uncanny, right? Or, or sorry, not uncanny, but he's, he's speaking candidly is what I'm trying to say. Because it, 
it's an audience that is mixed, i.e. there are people who are the converted, i.e. people who are his, his associates. Um, there are people from the Tavistock who are very eclectic in their approach to, to psychoanalysis, very open-minded. So in essence, there are many people who have an idea of what Jung is, is saying, how it relates to the human psyche, how it relates in a practical way to helping people, but those who aren't really familiar. And what's great about the, the Tapstock lectures is that it's followed by a, a, a question period. And you can see, you know, Jung working through his concepts, trying to use layman's terms in many ways, but also getting quite angry, getting quite emotional when people don't quite understand what he's saying. Um, in addition to that, if you look to the audience itself, there are people who, who weren't psychotherapists there as well. So Jung, in many ways, had to account for all these different audience members when delivering the lectures. And what you find then is a very direct delivery, um, but also uh, an accessible delivery of some of his major ideas. Other books um, I found really useful, Joseph Campbell's compilation of, uh, I think at one point it was called The Viking uh, Edition to Jung. Um, I read it as the portable young, so I found that a very useful uh, primary source compilation. Of course, there's Modern Man in Search of His Soul, uh, Modern Man in Search of a Soul, and Man, uh, Man His Symbols as well. We'll include links to those in the show notes. And Kevin, have you got any advice for somebody like yourself who's considering a career in psychology? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I think there's perhaps a distinction to be made between psychology and how you know psychology is is practiced and the depth psychologies and the talking therapies which I think Jung falls into um, I would say be eclectic in, in in your studies I mean because Jung was quite eclectic in his studies and it, it wasn't psychology that jumped out of him right you jumped out at him right away he studied philosophy he studied religion he studied history he studied Latin he studied you know mythology so I think it's important to have a, a very broad base, right? I think actually in many ways, people who come down this path and, and are really engaged with Jung's ideas, they didn't study psychology, they studied something else, right? Usually within the social sciences and the humanities. Um, so I would say it's important to be eclectic, to really have a grounding in another discipline, actually. I think that's really important um, in order then to kind of deconstruct that, right? It's a starting point you know, a, a form that you need to have before you can actually have no form. Um, so in many ways, be open in terms of what you read, what you study, find a foundation, develop a base. And then once you move, I would say, into the postgraduate level, that's when I think these ideas really come into play, right? Where you can have a Jungian perspective or a psychoanalytic perspective, an object relations perspective on a particular field of study or an area of study. So I think that's actually crucial. In terms of, you know, uh, wanting to train as a Jungian analyst, and I think many people do want to do that, especially when they encounter Jung in the first instance, I think it's important to know what training organizations are asking of you. So that could include um, X amount of hours of therapy, i.e. your own therapy with an analyst. Some may say that the analyst has to come from that particular organization excuse me, that they have to come from that particular organization. Um, but then it, it, in many ways, you know, the, the profession itself, I think it's changing. But in the past, people would kind of see someone in the 20s coming to an open day for one of these societies. And they might say to you, you know, wow, 
great that you want to know more about this, that you have uh, a good grounding in the ideas, but go away and go live your life. And they would actually say no to those candidates because they're too young. Um, and you, you know, you could see that as perhaps um, not necessarily appreciating what youth today, if you will, will bring to the table. Um, but you can understand where they're coming from. It's all about life experience, isn't it? Where if you haven't experienced and worked through your dark night of the soul, right? Your your deepest, um, you know, the you know, or sorry, exploring your kind of deepest darkest experiences if you haven't kind of gone through that then how can you help someone else through those experiences and that's the logic right that's where they're coming from now me personally who's to say that by your 20s you haven't seen that moment that you haven't already worked through that moment right so for me those types of arguments don't fly because someone who's in their early 20s might have actually experienced their biggest dip in their life and have come through the other side so in many ways, uh, you know, hopefully with a lot of these more traditional training societies, they're beginning to see that, um, that it's, it's probably wrong just to dismiss someone based on their age, i.e. they're too young. Because usually people who become analysts do so at a later time in life. But equally, many training organizations now are having a scale approach, if you will, that they're offering different types of training programs that will be suitable to people of different ages, right? So you may not be, or you may not be training as a young analyst, but you might be training as a counselor, a psychotherapist, et cetera, et cetera. I would also say that at this early stage, it's very important for people to gain practical experience, right? And that could be as simple as, you know, volunteering at a crisis helpline, you know, volunteering at a local shelter, just to begin, if you will, to to know what it means to be in relationship with people with certain difficulties um, and putting yourself in those situations to seeing how you react, noticing what you do well, and also learning from your mistakes as well, which is really crucial. That's, that's great advice, Kevin. Thanks for sharing. Um, could you tell us about the MA in Jungian and post-Jungian studies at the University of Essex, which you're, which you're currently running? Yeah, absolutely. So it's the only degree of its kind uh, in Europe um, and, and the UK as well. Um, God knows what's going to happen after Brexit. But, you know, in terms of a post-Jungian approach, it is the place to be. And, you know, as we said earlier with the post-Jungian approach, it's an appreciation of Jung's work, but also a critical distance that we gain through academic study, i.e. academic rigor, but it's also reflecting the context in which, or sorry, the context in which how analytical psychology flourishes in the UK. And this really boils down to Michael Fordham and his own, in many ways, rebellious approach uh, to understanding and utilizing young, i.e. looking at um, childhood development, looking at children specifically. So in terms of the, the MA Youngian and Post Youngian studies, uh, you can do it full-time. You could also pursue the degree uh, part-time. And again, what we're, we're doing with this course is that if you are going on, uh, you know, to, to, to go on to your PhD to contribute to the field, these are the ABCs of the field, right? So the, the way the modules break down. So uh, context. So basically, as we've discussed, Young's thinking, it's not that he just sits on a stone one day and say, Eureka, here are all my ideas. No, there are many 
different thinkers, many different contexts and experiences that converge and, and coalesce to form and shape analytical psychology, right? So in this particular module, we're exploring all those different contexts. We also have a strong appreciation of reading Young, right? So if you're going to read Young and understand Young, you're going to read primary sources, i.e. noting how difficult Young's writing can be, how inaccessible it can be. When we go to these nice little compilations that we've, you know, some of which we've mentioned earlier, that, that's great, right? But usually those texts that are chosen are chosen for a very particular reason, i.e. they're accessible, right? They're, they're, they're accessible to a particular audience. At the level of the MA, we really engage with how difficult Young's writing is, the rhetorical devices that he uses to persuade us of, of a particular line of thinking or an argument, and also, you know, beginning to look at the problems of translation, because here we are saying that we, we want to focus on primary sources, and yet Young mostly wrote in German, and here we are reading the collected works in English. So problems of translation also feature uh, in this particular module, as well as a focus on key concepts, um, but his, his understanding of mythology as well. We then move on to the second part of the course. So while we're very, uh, you know, open in saying that we're not a clinical training and that completing our degree doesn't necessarily lead to any clinical qualification or a pathway, we do appreciate um, the importance of the clinical perspective and how important it has been to, to creating knowledge in the field. So what Professor Andrew, Andrew Samuels has been able to do is that he's been able to recruit at least one representative across the, the, the five splits, I believe it's six now, but the, the splits within the training organizations uh, in the Jungian world, he's been able to recruit at least one representative to teach on this particular course. And this is PA 973. And even though it, you know, it's called concepts, we're looking at concepts, we're defining concepts, it's moving beyond concepts as well, because the analysts are there not just to define the concept for you, because you can go off and read that in a book, but to see how they've met that concept in clinical practice. What did it look like? You know, was my Jungian training sufficient to meet that particular experience? In what ways was it sufficient, right? Do we throw the baby out with the bathwater? Or are there ways of supplementing and developing Jung's ideas based on these clinical experiences? So that's PA 973. And then the penultimate module, PA 974, uh, Jungian applications. So as we've discussed earlier, you know, one way in which analytical psychology survives, especially in the academy, is to see the, you know, to explore the ways in which these ideas have sway and have purchase when, in relationship to other fields. So here we're applying Young's ideas to other fields. And really, it's a, a, an opportunity for us to learn from our students, because many of them will have a degree that is, you know, not in Jungian studies or, again, very different from our own. And in many ways, they're the expert coming in. So once they've gone through the rest of the course, they're able to bring together what they're learning uh, throughout the, the MA, but then their own area of expertise, and then trying to bring it together and see whether or not there might be a fit or there might be real points of conflict uh, in, in, you know, in bringing different fields together. And then after that, there's obviously the dissertation. So in many ways, it's a fantastic MA. Um, and, and what we're offering, it's, yes, it's a body of knowledge. It's a way into the field in many ways. But for many uh, people who come to us, they're already clinicians and practitioners. 
So our course also offers a way for individuals who, let's say, have a more intuitive grasp of certain concepts, i.e. they know what transference and countertransference looks like, right? They've worked with the shadow, but they're coming back for that more rigorous and academic understanding and underpinning, which will only help them enhance their own practice. We've had people come in who have who've been, you know, businessmen and businesswomen, which has been really fantastic and really interesting. Um, and people from, let's say, human resources who kind of take these ideas and then apply it to their own work once they, they complete the MA and go back uh, to, to, their, to their jobs. But in many ways, people use this as a springboard, not just to, you know, moving into the higher levels of, let's say, the PhD and then becoming contributors to our field, perhaps publishing work as well, but really a, a way of just engaging in that critical thinking, right? Engaging in that critical environment of being open, of being open to debate, being open to challenge. And any good MA will do that. Um, and we're just putting this in the context of Young's ideas. That sounds like a great program. I will include links for that in the, in the show notes as well. But I think that's pretty much all we've got time for today, Kevin. Uh, I just want to say a huge thank you for, for taking the time to share some of your knowledge with us. Have you got any any asks for the audience? Any any final calls to action? I know that you've got a taster course coming up at the University of Essex. Maybe you want to say something about that. Yes, we do. We have a taster course that is uh, happens every year. Last week of September. This year, I believe it starts uh, on the twenty fourth, which is the Monday, and ends on the Friday. So that's the twenty fourth of September. I want to thank uh, Niall. I want to thank you know all the work that you've been doing on behalf of the Weekend University. Um, inviting me to, to speak at your, your, your very fine talks. I was actually looking through the history of some of the talks the other day, and you know, it's quite impressive, um, the people you've been able to get, um, but also just really the, the interesting um, topics that you're touching upon. So keep up the good work. Um, any questions, the audience, if, if, you know, if you have any questions, by all means, you, know, you can find me through the, the University of Essex website, send me an email, and uh, I'll respond accordingly. Thanks for listening and I hope you enjoyed the show. Don't forget that you can win a three-month pass worth £150 to the Weekend University if you subscribe and leave a review on iTunes. And if you're interested in keeping up to date with new psychology lectures and upcoming events, you can sign up for the mailing list at theweekenduniversity.com.